We're listening to Buried Secrets of Stonehenge on Gaia. Thanks for 323k, even though it's just law enforcement. Mike Parker Pearson. So what I say is that henge bank could have been very, very colourful. I've done experiments with ochre. If you mix it with some ammonia, then you can literally paint onto stone, and even through storm after storm, it remains pretty constant. It would need a touch-up every now and again. So again, it's a colourful world, the ancients. Not grey like that, on the inside and out. And in Orkney, they found paint pots on the nest of vodka. And here we have that iconic picture, all in the shades of grey. So, for example, that huge trilophon there, that was deep orange with a beautiful pink hue. These stones never saw the light of day until they reached Stonehenge. People think when they go and look at stones in, in what's called the Valley of the Stones, about 17 miles from uh, this monument, oh, that's where they got them from. No. They dug them out. They were buried. Because if you have a buried stone and you raise it to see the light of day, it's easy to make into a lozenger shape. So these stones were special. Avery was built from stones that had been lying on the surface. These came from deep underground. And, and blue stones, that term blue stone implies they're all blue. No, some were green. Some were such a beautiful green shade with red and then, like I said before, these flexes in them. Well, that didn't fit the model. So guess what Atkinson did? He buried them. And I've got a map to show you where, where they all were. When we look at Stonehenge, again, through this same, same model, then we see it's got an axis line that everybody says, oh, it's aligned to the midsummer sunrise. It's off Atkinson again. He forced that photograph, really, because if you're at the centre of Stonehenge, to get the sunrise over the heelstone, you have to be six feet away. And he got his photographer to do that. Any archaeoastronomer will tell you the heelstone's best alignment is to the moon. Every nine years, the moon rises above the heelstone. That's its true alignment. So we're going to go have a new view of Stonehenge now, because English heritage will tell you there's a stone circle of sarsens in which there's the blue stones, then you've got the trilithons, then you have the altar stone. I say no. There was a concentric stone circle of blue stones there, and there's the evidence for it. And here, Professor Mike Parker Pearson, he agrees with me. He says, we don't know if they, the blue stone sockets behind the greater trilithon were part of the Q&R blue stone circle. The, everyone else says it's a horseshoe, which I have interpreted, and I do. But, we can, but the English heritage say, no, it's, it's a horseshoe. Let's, let's stick it as a horseshoe. But the professionals think it's a concentric stone circle of the blue stones on the inside. I'll show you that in a moment. That's the model. I've been talking about. No avenue leading into it, and this is my model. And it's saying to you there was two altar stones, very colourful. One was taken, and we're see by the occultist of the royals, he stole that stone. And then that's the concentric circle, and there may have even been another trilophon. 
and I'll show you that. They know that's there, yeah? So it could have been opposite. So that's what English Heritage tell you. That is probably the truth of Stonehenge. And I'm getting more and more archeologists agreeing with me. You just gotta step outside the box and say, no, this could be a beautiful new Stonehenge. And right at the top where it says stone number 30 and one, you've got extra stones, like a bluestone avenue. You'd walk processionally into Stonehenge through a very short avenue. That's not on any model at all, because Atkinson knew that there was that way to enter it, and he even got the excavation. That's the excavation showing you the entrance. But he decided in all the guides not to keep that in. Again, another kind of repressed information. James I, aren't our kings mad? Yeah, it's not a queen man. Uh, the kings of the past, honestly. King James VI of Scotland, James I of England, as he would become known. A very unusual king. Yeah, and he even inspired, you know, all of Shakespeare's plays. He was paranoid about witches. Yeah. <laughs> he was so paranoid about witches, he decided to write a book uh, his first uh, most famous book was translated the Bible, translating the Bible from Latin into English. And it's still a bestseller today. And then he was accusing people of witchcraft and, and trying to kind of topple him down. And so he wrote demonology, at the, uh, to, telling people, oh, they, if they have these signs on them, that they're a witch. And he started the frenzy of it all. But meanwhile, he was an occultist. And he had two occultists working with him. In fact, he was married to Queen Anne of Denmark. Okay? But he had a lover. And his uh, lover was called George Villiers, the dashingly handsome Duke of Buckingham. That's what I need. Now, mm. traditionally, you have one altar stone here. It's said to have stood at the heart of Stonehenge. I say there were two. And I say there was evidence for two. The socket hole was found in the 1620s by James I, his lover, the Duke of Buckingham, and Indigo Jones went with him as well. Indigo Jones said that there was uh, six trilophons. He got back through sacred geometry. We were going to find the sixth one. They called the socket hole in modern times WA3359. So what happened? Duke of Buckingham said to James I, I'm ill, I'm really, really ill. The whole of England thought James I was going to die after his wife, Anne of Denmark, departed. And so the Duke said, we need a blood ritual. And they did a blood ritual, and the following year, James I came back to life. And the first place they all went to to visit was Stonehenge because they knew the stones could heal because it was written in the 12th century that they were healing stones. So that's where they went. And that's what we're gonna go and search for, the altar stone. This is the, uh, the Duke of Buckingham uh, here. He, when he went there with Inigo Jones, he said, I will buy the trilophon. They, well, he wanted the greater trilophon to take back to, to London. 
and he offered the owner at the time any money you want. He was, had more power than the King of England. He was in control of England at that time. Him and his uh, mother, they were both occultists. But the owner said no. And so that's the stone that they wanted. It's, it's leaning, Colonel Hawley put it back up, but that's the one they wanted, and they couldn't have that. So they probably, for their occult practices, took the altar stone, the second altar stone, which uh, is probably uh, being stolen and carted away. And this is the evidence for it. All through history, it's been saying the second altar stone in John Aubrey's famous book, Monumentum Britannica, Aubrey was told of the second altar stone's fate by the rector of Bishopstone. He said that Philip, Earl of Pembroke, Lord Chamberlain to King Charles I, successor of James I, did say that an altar stone was found in the middle of the area here and it was carted away to St. James. And they interpreted that as St. James's Palace in London. So it was all documented that the second altar stone uh, was stolen. And when I asked archaeologists, we have all of this evidence. They were still looking for it in the 1930s. For example, oh, well, we'll just stick to the model. We'll just stick to the model. And it's probably here in uh, St. James's Palace or in another place in Wiltshire, which Inigo Jones designed. So it's in one of those places. And it was the most, one of the most healing stones there. <clears throat> with the official line of Atkinson with the second altar stone, they know the holes there. They know the holes there, so they've got to find it. And he says that the, the stone hole, WA3359, was for a makeshift uh, stone. And the makeshift altar stone was this blue stone with a groove in it that still stands today by the altar stone. And there's one stone that they buried and hid away that has a kind of tongue. And they put these two stones together and they made a makeshift altar stone. Now, uh, everything at Stonehenge had meaning. Nothing was by chance, and that's no way uh, the second altar stone, but that's the official line uh, going. So we're coming to another anomaly now. The Buckingham Duke Trilogy. of Buckingham. <laughs> Again, Hawley, back in the 1930s, really knew that well, that was the model. They clearly saw that, but they knew that they could, didn't know what to do with it. They found it, and so this is the model Inigo Jones made of the sixth uh, trilithon. That's what, uh, what it looks like, and where is, where is it? This is where it is. It's buried right there, and they know that, and they won't dig it up, and they won't do an excavation. I've called for one recently and saying, well, let's just have a look, geophysic, do something to try and find this uh, wonderful uh, stone. I'm going to talk now about the power of stone because Stonehenge can really change your consciousness and it has such healing ability that is second to none and that is the magic of stone. Imagine there's loads of ley lines coursing through Stonehenge but more than that at the center you have a convergence of earth currents rising out of the ground and also by the heel stone, that's a PowerPoint as well. We're gonna have a look at the metaphysical properties of stone and how the ancients used the monument. 
And here we have a wonderful quote from the 12th century. For in these stones is a mystery and a healing virtue against many ailments. For they washed the stones and poured the water into baths, whereby those who were sick were cured. For not a stone is there that is wanting in virtue or leechcraft. I mean, it was the best place to go and have healing and mixing water with stone. That's a trace element of what was really happening with some of these very, very mighty stones. These stones here are what's called in situ. They haven't ever been touched by Atkinson. They're not swamped in concrete. That's how ancients, the ancients put them there. And again, imagine them pink and orange very light pink hue. It is very beautiful sarsen that's come out of the ground. It's not that kind of gray color that you see. And this is the side of a very special trilophon. So join me now. We'll go to Stonehenge. We've gone through the entrance of the blue stone, concentric circle. And now there's a horseshoe with a trilophon behind me. And just on my left-hand side is a towering stone. And if you walk towards that, you really do feel your body down one side tingle, for, for example. But it had a hole on the other side. And that hole there, according to the custodian of uh, Stonehenge and the archaeologist, that made water even in a drought. It was magical. They said it could be a really hot day. It would fill up with water. And they tried to figure out where the water was coming from. And you can even see water erosion where it was overflowing. And so people went there from far and wide and said that uh, you know, it could heal all sorts of disorders. Shortness of breath, asthma is what they were talking about in that time. The falling sickness, epilepsy is what that was called. And people, even in the 1940s, after the war, used to go there and start bathing and washing in it. And they said they would be cured of all ailments. That's why in that first postcard I showed you, after illness. So it's very, very powerful. And so there was queues now in the 1940s. People had ailments from the Second World War. So people are queuing by that stone. And the authorities got to hear about it and said, what's all this about the healing waters here? And they were saying, oh, it's like the Lords of France. They said, oh, we don't, we can't have this. We're going to stop this practice now. And that's what they did. They plugged it up with cement and plastic. So it no longer is a, is a feature, but it's, it's remembered by the very old, even in Amesbury today. So that's one of the healing virtues wow. of the mighty <clears throat> temple. Filled up with concrete and plastic. Stonehenge. You hear that? This stone does. has fallen, okay? It came down in a storm. That's the line that, again, English heritage say. The stones didn't fall down. They've been up for four and a half thousand years. What had happened was Atkinson got a crane and he lifted stone 22 from its socket and apparently it went crazy. And it spun around and spun around and spun around and went bang into another stone. And so now that one's leaning. So mm. they said, oh, we're going to push that one up. And this one came down because of something else Atkinson did, we'll see in a moment. But they, uh, archaeologists say that this tooling here, as it's called, broad tooling, it makes a spine, okay? Like a big ridge, and you've got two, and they're at human height. 
So when that stone was upright, if I went against it like this, it goes perfectly down my spine. You get these spine stones at lots and lots of stone circles. Avery has one. And I believe that they were when they were upright, if you put your spine against them, hundreds and hundreds of people have done this with me and said that they feel the energy. But here's a good trick when you go to Stonehenge, when you get book your private access with me, you can get your hands and go all the way down and you feel heat rising out of the stone. And I took just recently, this last month, I took 60 people all in all to Stonehenge. 60 people felt the heat coming out of that stone. And then you get the guards come over. What are you doing? You're not allowed to touch stones. Touch, not to touch stones. Gently like that. And I said, there's heat coming out of the stones, was, uh, was the look. And he, then he started doing it. And he called the other securities over and said, look at this, the heat. So I think it was generated like that uh, in the past. It's an incredible stone. All of the stones at Stonehenge trilophons were for healing, okay? They this don't want us to be healed. other trilophon on the opposite side... They want us to die off. ...has a very strange carving in it, okay? It's like a, we'll see it in a moment. It's like a rectangle. Back in the Elizabethan times, it was recorded that there was a metal plate found near Stonehenge. Eventually it got buried in a burial, possibly with a very tall giant, as, as people, other researchers like Hugh Newman would say. I think it got buried, but it was said to be found near there. The metal, they didn't know. They were learned scholars at the time. They said it was tin. Then they argued, no, it's not tin, it's lead. They couldn't figure it out. It had all these hieroglyphics, all and these strange symbols on it. I propose that it was actually at Stonehenge itself. And this stone here of the trilophon, this is the carving. It's the exact same measurements as that metal plate. So maybe that was saying something about the history. But then people say, well, no, it was a Stone Age. It was in the Neolithic and the Bronze Age. But nonetheless, that plate, whatever what it was, wherever it came from, probably went there. And that's what I think. And it probably shone beautifully so. Just before we come to the people of the past, I want to tell you about the fate of Trilophon 59 and 60. The spine stone that I've just showed you was gently leaning over like that. Anyone will tell you that a leaning stone shows you the strongest earth energy and it bows to sacred space. That's why when you enter a long barrow, you always have to go down and then come back up. You bow to sacred space. And Atkinson said, we're gonna straighten it like this. It can't be leaning, can't be, that can't be the design. So with crane and chain, he lifted that stone up and he must have had an oh no moment. So suddenly it had a, a cut out feature that began to crack and it cracked doo, 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 all the way down. And they said there was a sound released from that stone itself. And today, that's the weakest point of Stonehenge. And they didn't know what to do. So they plugged it up with concrete. That's why the, you see Jesus this stone Christ. and people go, what's inside that? It's a huge piece of ugly concrete. And that's because it was destroyed by Atkinson. But the people of the past, 
I mentioned that they had elongated skulls. There's two types of elongated skulled people. For example, back in 2015, when I first discovered them, this is the, the High Queen of that long barrow that I discussed earlier, she had a hyper-elongated skull because it had been manipulated by bandaging. You do get naturally long-skulled people, but some of their skulls have been extended. And this is the one from Cambridge, uh, definitely a ruling elite. She was buried with artifacts as well. So they say in the what? Stone Age, although there was never any artifacts, she was buried with what looked like a kind of uh, a wand with uh, antlers and also an incense pot. And the incense pots, if you imagine like in churches, they swing the incense like that, don't they? That's what they were doing. They had these incense pots, they were swinging them like in churches, and they were full of opiates. So they were you know, entering a, a different sort of consciousness, uh, if you will. Now, I didn't have the body proportions when I first had that skull. I then had to go back uh, to Cambridge to find out the, the dimensions. And even though they had very long elongated skulls, they're tiny little skulls because we have a body measurement of one-eighth of our head to our bodies. They didn't. It was one-tenth. So they're very, very small heads and long bodies looking all completely out of proportions. And these are from an anthropologist from Oxford. And when I said to them, well, you've got all of this information. Has anyone ever put one of these together? And they said, no. And with the full height of the femur bone, probably about five feet. Uh, this is a male. Uh, for example, so very tiny little heads. And this is me measuring a, a femur bone uh, with uh, the crater of uh, Oxford. And all the measurements from all of the Neolithic long barrows, 17 inches or less. Even from the names like the giant's grave, they were just 16 inches. Again, five feet four tall. So that's the skull shape that was from, again, from report. So you imagine that tiny skull and their faces were so narrow, like this. And when I said to the creator that you've just seen, that's like a child's. And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. So they, had, they were kind of very, almost like, as you'll see, fairy-like, because their ears were all in a, a different position than we have uh, today. So I think these were the mythical beings of, that descended into the mounds in mythology, in Ireland, because they say the Tuatha Dé Nan were the ruling supernatural, fae, the fairy folk of Ireland. And after losing a battle, which they did have a battle, the elongated skulls, they descended into the mounds. And that's what I think these beings are. They're very different from uh, the giants because in every single report that we read, their ears were quite large, set further back. So we have our ears in the kind of, obviously, in the uh, right place for, uh, for us. Their ears were uh, much, much further back, giving them, again, this mythological kind of look, uh, like uh, modern-day depictions that we have uh, today, but very fine features uh, as well. And I believe, with their elongated uh, skulls, that they had metaphysical powers uh, about them. And I think they could, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, I think they could hear the stones. So there's two types of long-headed people, like I mentioned earlier. This is a, a long-headed uh, person, really extended skull at the back. 
And the evidence from the Longbows, especially at Stonehenge, that there was some kind of battle that was going on at Stonehenge, for example. So you've got these mythical looking people. And I believe with the ancient DNA that they were the ones that constructed Stonehenge because it's a Neolithic monument. So you have the lesser type, and this is one here. The skull is still very tiny, uh, and they were, again, very small with their femur, femur bones. And this is a, a close-up of it, very, very uh, childlike, uh, in, 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 even in weight. And these bones are very, very light as well, rather than the dense skulls that we have today. And this is how narrow they are as well. And that's a measurement map that you use at places uh, like, like Oxford, for example. Put it through a computer so, shows uh, what they look, look like. There. Then this skull is of the, the lesser long-headed type, but they are still very, very narrow. Now, let's compare that to the invaders that came in. And they were called the Belbica people around 2500 BC. And that's a comparison. So they would have looked like giants to them. So they were coming over and they were looking at our monuments, the Europeans. We've got all the DNA evidence uh, for this, incidentally. And I think there was now a battle for Stonehenge, just like in the Irish mythology, because the Neolithic queen that I opened up with, she had been murdered. And when I looked to the archaeological reports of all of the barrows that surrounded her, they had all been murdered as well. In fact, in one barrow alone, there was a massacre of about 40 males, hidden away, squirreled away on the Salisbury Plain. So what was going on there? I think that the round-headed uh, people, and that's what the, the antiquarians kind of figured all of this out because they said long-headed people in long barrows, round-headed people in round barrows. So they were the people. There was a battle. And it baffles archaeologists. Why has Stonehenge gone over so many different tinkerings? They would take one stone setting and change it. So, for example, uh, 2500 BC, they took that concentric circle, made it into an oval shape. Then they would take something out and they would change it around. And they don't know why. Why did they keep changing all of our monuments? They did at Avebury. Avebury's not one monument at any one time. It's Neolithic and Bronze Age and Late Bronze Age. I think that's because the round-skulled people were dominating the area and tried to make it theirs. The first thing they did at Stonehenge was try to topple the Greater Trilithon by building, uh, by constructing rather, a big, big pit by it, but it still held its own. Now, Earth energies. I think these people of the past were highly, highly sensitive to the Earth, to stone. And they were very smart because I've been taught Dowson by Chinese geomancers, uh, master dancers of Europe, for example, and the master dancers of Europe showed me something. They got me to Turin and said, we're going to show you how even today the bishops uh, would enter an ancient site. I thought that sounds really interesting. And so they got me to try and find what they call a neutral area. And so I said, I think it's here, just off to one side before you'd enter a church or a cathedral in the northern part of Italy. 
And then I said, well, I'm going to have to see if I can find these in, in the rest of the world. Because what they told me was really quite fascinating. You go to the neutral place before you enter the monument and just stand there for, for a while. And let the energy uh, soak in you. We measured them. There's a lot of uh, negative ions coming out of the ground. And the electromagnetic field gets a little bit stronger. And so does the DC field. So while you're being cleansed, you're being grounded uh, as well at the same time. So you, Avery, this is the neutral stone. You stand by it. And then if you walk around it on its uh, inner face, there's a ledge where you can sit down because it cleanses the energies. So you don't take your emotional baggage, <laughs> we've all got that, into the stone circle or temple. You get this at Karnak with the, the avenues of the Sphinx. So before you enter, you cleanse uh, your whole being and it really does feel good. Also, if you're into dowsing, you can do a before and after. So if I measured somebody's aura, for example, and you, you take a pendulum or rod and just move it away from the body, you might get a reaction here. Normally it's about here. As soon as you've been into a neutral space, it will be way past me. So my auric field now is very, very receptive. What the Neolithic were looking for as well, whether it's a pyramid, whether it's a stone circle, they were looking for sacred water. And sacred water is water that is born within the earth and generates this spiral pattern independent of rainfall. It's supposed to be very healing and it emits this kind of high electromagnetic field of seven to ten hertz. That was their first design. Seven to ten hertz. And what the Neolithic were looking for as well, whether it's a pyramid, whether it's a stone circle, they were looking for sacred water. And sacred water is water that is born within the earth and generates this spiral pattern independent of rainfall. It's supposed to be very healing and it emits this kind of high electromagnetic field of seven to 10 hertz. That was their first design canon. And it doesn't matter where you go in the world, it's very, very expensive to bore and it's very difficult to find so when you have moneyed people they will want that water they know about it and if you're on your normal tap water that you you know drink from the tap then that is groundwater that has fallen from the sky and filled up the aquifers so an esoteric water divine in law that a healing symbol when you stand above it, but if you drink that water, you will live to a long, long age. And when I did some uh, water divining for, he's passed away now, uh, for Lord Barr, Alexander Thin, he said, come to my property, I want you to, to decode it, Maria. And he said, I live above the spirals. We drink spiral water. So they do know uh, about this, that's for sure. And uh, there's these type of aquifers beneath the pyramids. A lot of people just say it's a groundwater aquifer beneath the pyramid. Yes, you've got that groundwater there, yang water, but then you've got the yin water down here. And that's the sacred energy that uh, you are, will be in that field. And these energy patterns of the underground water can create triple spirals. And they are really sacred and very, very holy. And this is Newgrange 
in Ireland. A terrible reconstruction. I don't know if you've seen the before and after of this. That's got breeze blocks behind it. And in Ireland, all of the cans, as they're called, they have crystal quartz going over the top, but they stuck it round the side. They now know that was a mistake, a bit like some of the reconstructions at Stonehenge. And here we have the very famous triple spiral here. And a lot of people will say, oh, that represents the time of the year and uh, could be linked to Sirius or Venus. But the Earth produces this. And if we interact with these type of energies, I believe they regenerate your own body water. And they're very healing in that regard. So I take people to ancient sites to work with these energies and cleanse, uh, cleanse themselves literally from the, in, from the inside out. And these are the lunar effects at Stonehenge that create these wonderful patterns. But underground water doesn't behave like surface water. So surface water, such as the sea, uh, will react to the new and full moon in its high tides. These don't. In ancient Druid lore, you would only pick mistletoe six days after a new or full moon. And they constantly said the, the, the year began six days after the spring equinox. I suggest that the ancient Druids were so connected to nature, they felt these days because these energy patterns happen six days after new or full moon. So if you go to an ancient site on those days, but everybody tends to go there on a new or full moon, then you'll be experiencing by numerous stones, these triple spirals. And when you kind of really work with this, this energy, then I have had loads of people had healing experiences. I took a blind person around Stonehenge and it was probably one of my most interesting times because she was so highly sensitized, she could feel and she said it was like music coming out of the ground and she could feel all of these triple uh, spirals. And here we have another one at another phase of the six days after the full moon. The first one is the new and that one is the second. So a lot going on at ancient sites. And a lot of people have all heard about lays. I'm sure you all have uh, here today have heard about ley lines. And back in the 1980s, I had the pleasure of working with the master dancer, Hamish Miller, and Paul Broadhurst. And Hamish kindly has forwarded some of my books. He's a truly remarkable dancer. In the 1960s, John Michelle said that there was a very famous ley line going from the west uh, in coast in Cornwall all the way up to Hopton. That's what he said, and he said to Hamish and John, why are you going douse it, guys, and see what you get? And they thought they'd get lays that aren't really that exciting. They kind of expand and, and, and do this, and then they uh, sometimes go into the ground. So there they were, uh, doused it, and then they realized they hit on a lay system. So if you imagine that there's the ley line, and you've got a male current entwining it, then a female in current entwining it, like the caduceus symbol or a strand of DNA, that's a lay system. And they are very powerful. You'll get the lay going through the site as a carrier wave almost, pushing the energy on, but the current 
that's what the ancients were truly working with because in an environment like Avebury or Stonehenge, the ley line just hits one, two features. But these earth currents, they hit every single feature, bathing them in color. Like I said earlier, earth currents have a dominant color frequency. They're called the esoteric colors of the earth. You have the esoteric colors of the sun. So there's other colors that the earth produces that aren't on the electromagnetic spectrum from red through to, to violet. Hamish called those two currents Mary and Michael because, mainly because they have churches on them dedicated to Mary and Michael. And when I was in Egypt, I thought I would look for a lay system over there because everybody else just does the lays. And when I was uh, in, in Abydos Temple, for example, uh, you have the solar uh, ley line going right the way through the axis line of the church. That's done in yellow. There you've got another crossing point of a blue ley. You have three very powerful currents coursing through the land in temple after temple uh, with, their, with their energies. They're affected by the sun and the moon as well. So you get the solar line will be charged, especially now. I mean, we're, we're, yesterday was Midsummer's Day, wasn't it? A lot of people could confuse Midsummer's Day with the summer solstice. People keep thinking it's in the ground. It's earth energy. It must be in the ground. But it rises up. And we've used very uh, sensitive filters to try and find uh, the different frequencies and the different colors. And it's interesting to note that when you look to famous dowsers, you have, for example, Isaac Newton. He, he was a dowser. But one of the best dowsers, unfortunately so, was Himmler. And Himmler opened up the Dowson Academy <laughs> during the Second World War. And in my family archives, I've got this wonderful photograph of Himmler shaking Hitler's hand, saying, congratulations on your Dowson Academy. <laughs> because they were looking into how to raise the frequencies, probably for very dark purposes. But they were following and tracking two very powerful frequencies. They're opposite each other. It's the white ray and the red ray. And that's where they got the colors for the Nazi flag from. Because if you raise these frequencies up, it is said that you can partly control the whole of that lay system. So imagine that I'm right in the bottom of Cornwall and I'm manipulating energies. I can influence Hopton on the Norfolk coast. That's the power of it, in a way. Wherever you are, you can influence something else. The German master dowser that taught me about the red and the white frequency said, we're going to go to Stonehenge, and I'm going to raise it by a factor of 15. And he did it in a particular manner. He was a top German master dowser. He will always be nameless because he has the most high-ranking position in your unelected, incidentally. But he is a very powerful dowson. So there we are at Stonehenge. And he said, I'm going to raise it by the factor of 15. And he did. And he said, and everybody that isn't in harmony with that earth current will dissipate. But they'll do it naturally. I thought, this I've got to see. I like that little trick. Uh, so he was there. He did a, a particular kind of rite uh, ritual. And everybody left. 
And then we were just stood in Stonehenge watching all of this. And then my head started ringing. And I was thinking, wow, I can't, I can't handle this either. And I had to, to leave. I just happened to be talking to two ladies there. And she said, oh, I got a really strange ringing uh, in my head. And that's what a lot of people can do here today. They can manipulate these energies. So I think, you know, when we go to these sites, tune in to see if you can get the color frequency. And it's so easy to do. You just get a, a Dowson dial. And then you get a pendulum and you ask to be shown the frequency. So, for example, the Knights Templar had their color frequencies. The Nazis had their color frequencies uh, as well. The British royals have their color frequencies. For example, whenever you get the red and the white ray of what the, the Germans were, were looking for, that's the symbol of the warrior. So when you go to some ancient sites that are associated with war and, and warriorship, that's the color frequencies. And when you go to other sites that have the frequency of the white ray and the blue ray, for example, that's the healing frequency. And that's where you can literally get healing. So, and the Templars had their encodements and, and so did other societies as well. They all have their color encodement. And the royals, for, for example, they will only have a, a home or an ancient site where they're inaugurated, like Tara uh, in Ireland, the high kings went there to be you know, inaugurated. Then you must have the red, the white, and the blue which is our, our color encodement of our flags. So I really feel, uh, as, as a dowser, when we really start to decode ancient sites, we can say what they were being used for, how to use them today, and how they were probably used in the past, and by whom as well. The natural thing is, when you work with these color frequencies, for example, if you're into healing and you allow that energy to literally come through your being, that will call you in the healing frequencies. So it's more than just looking at lines on a map, and it's more than just looking at earth currents in the ground. And at particular times of the year, if it's a male uh, current, like that's a solar line with male uh, currents entwining it, they become active at particular times of the eight-fold year, which are, we've just had one, the solstices. They make the quarter days. Then we have those days in between, for example, like August the 1st, Lammoth. That's the next portal day uh, coming up. Then we have uh, Samhain. Christianized to Halloween, when uh, in Druidry, the ancestors are close and they can kind of come out of the ground and you can converse with them. And in bulk, uh, February the 1st, these are when these energies are at their maximum. And it's a sad fact is when everything's at its maximum and you can really, really become empowered by it, Stonehenge is a free-for-all. Anyone can enter. And it's then, you know, thousands and thousands of people and, and it's, it's pretty chaotic. But if you go there on those days, you go to an ancient site on one of those eight-fold days, the veil is thinning. And then you can interact. And then you can feel. And then you can walk around the monument. I believe that's how we should try to reenact 
how our ancestors were. So when we had a recap on this journey of going to Stonehenge, Stonehenge isn't what you've been shown in the past. It really isn't. Stonehenge, I found you lost features of the lost altar stone, the trilophon, and there's many other features besides that. I've also shown you that there's a mythical race, a long lost mythical race that interacted with Stonehenge, built phase one and phase two. The later phases of Stonehenge were built by the much taller people and the geology and the archeology span fit that model. It's just we're not uh, told about that at all. So I'm just going to be uh, wrapping up uh, in, a, in a moment. This is my new book coming out soon. It's uh, going to be out in September. It's got far more than what we've discussed uh, here today. It's uh, going to be out, like I said, probably September, October, because I'm taking Earth energies into the next level now. Uh, not only doing colour, that's all my old research of uh, times gone, as it were. I've found out every single Earth current can produce a musical frequency. And if you walk around an ancient site in a particular manner, you're walking in that musical harmonic and becoming one with it. And you can play musical instruments uh, to that harmonic. Also, I've discovered how we can enhance food production by living in harmony with Gaia as well. And my agricultural trials are now two years on, and I think that we can safely say if we follow this model, you can grow faster, no chemicals, and be healthier for it, because we can learn from the past and give ancient technology to the future. Thank you. Um, that was, uh, oops. Oh, Master So what else <clears throat> we got? Some interesting ET evidence in the Bible. Deep space. In 2014, the Center for Theological Inquiry Research Institute in New Jersey was awarded $1.1 million by NASA to study the societal implications of astrobiology. What would their overall impact be on religions if they were to discover we are not alone in the universe? As we conclude Season 3... William Henry the Bible Bo is one of the most referenced books in the world. Over the last few decades, an intense religious and scientific debate has been building around the idea of ETs in the Bible. In 2014, the Center for Theological Inquiry, a research institute in New Jersey, was awarded $1.1 million by NASA to study, quote, the societal implications of astrobiology, unquote. In other words, what would the overall impact be on religions if they were to discover we're not alone in the universe? Is it possible that a distant race of ancient aliens once inhabited the lands of the Bible, and if so, are we part of their legacy? 
when we're reading the Bible, we always have to look to the first page to see which version of the Bible are you reading. The New International Version, the New New International Version, the King James Version, the St. Jerome Version. Which version are you reading? Because the language is going to be different. So if we were to write, for example, the ET version of the Bible, we'd go back to every story where it says, and the heavens opened, and realize they're, they're talking about a stargate. What else could be the heavens opening but the, a rip in the fabric of space-time? And so this is a way we can start to connect with what the ancients were actually seeing or experiencing. Their language was different from ours. They would say, the heavens open. We would say, oh, a stargate opens. It's as much a function of language that separates us from true understanding as it is anything else. There are so many references of extraterrestrial contact in the Bible. There are 70 verses describing clouds as vehicles, 15 verses describing pillars, 10 verses describing dwellings as vehicles, 160 verses describing lights and fire as vehicles. There's 17 verses describing spinning wheels and also 22 verses describing dark and shining objects as vehicles. There's also 37 verses of various objects in the Bible that describe UFOs as flying furnaces and burning bushes. So as you can see, based off of the vocabulary of the people of those times, they can only use words that would help them describe what we would call nowadays UFOs. The Bible begins with the book of Genesis, and it ends with the book of Revelations. In between are dozens of stories that reference what many scholars suggest may be extraterrestrial phenomena. Genesis 6-4 describes the sons of God coming and bearing children with the daughters of man. This begs the question, who were the sons of God? The ultimate example of an extraterrestrial intervention in the Bible is Genesis chapter 6. This is where the fallen angels, the watcher angels, descend onto the earth plane, take on physical incarnation, and have sex with human females, creating a hybrid offspring referred to as the Nephilim. These are described as the mighty men of renown. Why is that? What does it mean what, to say that they're mighty men? What distinguishes a mighty man from an ordinary human? And the answer is, is that these fallen angels are considered to be equivalent to, if not the same as, the Anunnaki of Sumeria. The Anunnaki possessed a cloak or a garment called the Malamu that gave them superpowers. So what this is saying is that the Nephilim were the mighty humans who possessed this cloak or garment of the Anunnaki, and just like the Anunnaki, when they had the Malamu on, they're radiant, they're shining, they're luminous, and they have superpowers. So this is another hidden reference to technology in the Bible. That kind of interaction actually talks about the Nephilim actually interbreeding with uh, human women. That's a pretty big influence. Inside of our DNA, there's a programming language there. It's been left by our progenitors. When we crack this code and when we figure out who we are and where we're going, we'll realize that our destiny is in the stars. Therefore, we have to ask ourselves, if we go back to the Genesis story, were these a very advanced group of geneticists that made us as a hybrid species? There are accounts like this that have appeared uh, the former that I was referring to actually in the Bible itself, 
but other sources of ancient uh, origins like that, uh, such as the, the uh, tablets that Zechariah was translating, that seem to be indicative of accounts of these other beings interacting with us. Walter Matfield states in his book, Eden Serpent, Its Mesopotamian Origins, that the Garden of Eden belonged to the Anunnaki, lending more credence to the serpent not just being a biblical creature, but a member of the Anunnaki. Let's think of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. This is some type of a reptilian type of being that we've been taught to be afraid of. It's a, a wisdom bearer. It's in the Gnostic Gospels, they describe it as this bright snake, this illuminated snake taking on a humanoid form. We have the winged serpents that are described in the Bible, angels as winged serpents, humanoid beings with serpentine faces that can spin their bodies into whirlwinds and, and can change their form. They can shapeshift right before your eyes. These are clearly another class of beings. So I think what's gonna to have to happen here is we're gonna to have to broaden our perspective on the possibility of what other creatures could actually look like or be like. The Garden of Eden story also appears in the book of Ezekiel, where over the course of 12 different verses, there is mention of possible extraterrestrial encounters. One of the all-time great extraterrestrial craft references in the Bible is Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 through 28. Ezekiel is one of these wise men from the Temple of Solomon who's been deported to Babylon. He's sitting by the river Chabar, and he describes in his own words, the heavens open, the heavens open. Okay, this is a rip in the fabric of space-time. And he next describes something absolutely phenomenal. He says there's a, a cloud with this brightness about it, and it's flashing like lightning. He actually saw this vessel not only land, but he actually got inside of it. He took off with the, with the people. He thought that it was God, and they even said to him, no, we're not God. We're here to take you somewhere to meet somebody very important. So basically, it was a very, very good recorded account of a UFO that landed and that somebody got inside of and took off, went to another location to meet another being. And these beings, according to the writings, were not God. So it's very interesting to know that there's a lot of talk about not only UFOs in the Bible, but even people taking off. When examining the Old Testament account of Ezekiel, perhaps one of the most fascinating perspectives to consider comes from Eric Von Daniken, author of Chariots of the Gods. My God, in my opinion, in my dreams, does not need a vehicle in which to move around. God is omnipresent. God is like a spirit. He's always there. Now in the Bible, Prophet Ezekiel describes a strange story. He says, out of a sudden they hear the noise in the sky. All the slaves look up there. Then he sees an object coming down from the sky. Then he realizes that the object makes a tremendous noise. He compares the noise with the thundering of a waterfall. Or he compares it with, with, with fighting wagons. So a terrible noise this object made. All the slaves looking there, the object comes down, sand is blown up. Ezekiel is high priest by profession, so he believes in the beginning it must be God. He falls on his nose to pray to the Lord. And then he realized this is not God. 
And then he describes exactly what he sees. The wings move. When the wings move, that, that the tremendous noise started to be there again. When the wings stood still, they were hanging down. He describes the leg. He clearly says the leg were out of metal. Then he cries, he cries the wheel. And the wheel shocked him to totally. Because the wheel of his times can go forward and backward. But the wheel which he sees here, they go also forward and backward. But at the same time, left and right, without making a steering movement. Ezekiel sees a wheel which goes forward, backward, right and left without making a steering movement. This shocks him so he cannot understand it. He describes it four times. Some uh, 30 years ago, I had a secret speech at the headquarters at NASA in Huntsville, in the United States. On this speak, I also talk about five minutes about Ezekiel. And after the speech, we had a dinner together, and there was a the, the, the chief of the Department of Construction, an ex-German, his name was Joseph Brumrich, who came to me and said, that was very interesting, but Mr. von Däniken, in the Bible, you will never well, find technology. Scientists. The Bible, this is imagination. These are dreamings, visions, but, but not, not technology. He started to read Ezekiel, and finally he realized that whatever Ezekiel described is real, and he started to reconstruct Ezekiel's description. The outcome was a book with the English title, The Spaceship of Ezekiel. And in the foreword of it, Mr. Joe Blumrich, the ex-chief of the construction department at NASA said, I absolutely started this work to disprove Eric von Däniken's story of Ezekiel. But it was absolutely sensational what comes out. Ezekiel did so uh, extraterrestrial spacecraft. Now, Ezekiel's spaceship is not a mother spaceship with which you can move from star to star. Ezekiel's spaceship is only a, a, an object which today we would call space shuttle. You have to have a mother spaceship and from the mother spaceship, a smaller vehicle comes down to the Earth. So that's what it was. Now, this is very important. I knew the uh, uh, original Ezekiel. I read it uh, uh, first in Hebrew. I did not learn specially Hebrew, but we had a Latin translation. And in the original Ezekiel, the word God never appears, never. Ezekiel says it was the splendorness of the highest. The word God in the Bible only comes in later by the translators. The translator, the splendor of the highest, he means God. In the original, the word God is never mentioned. So he continues in the book of Ezekiel and says that the splendorness of the highest arrived a second time. And this time, the hand of the highest put him on the throne. In my view, he was sitting in the co-pilot's chair. And then he describes how they started. He says, and the hand of the highest pressed upon my chest because he feels the gravity when starting. He does not know where the trip goes because he says, they brought me on a very, very high mountain. He doesn't know where he is. He looks down and he sees under him something like a city, a small city or a big village. And in the center of it, something like a temple. The, the splendorness of the Lord comes to a standstill over the temple. Slowly, slowly, he sinks inside the so-called temple. And Ezekiel realized at that moment 
that the noise of the wings were this time higher and louder than what he had heard before in the desert, because now the echo comes back from the walls of the so-called temple. Then it comes to a standstill. Ezekiel gets out, gets out of the space shuttle, and of a sudden a glittering being appears again, one of the strangers, and he says to Ezekiel, Oh humans, you humans, you have eyes to see, but you see nothing. And you have ears to hear, but you hear nothing. And then the demanding Okay, we're listening to ET evidence in the Bible on Gaia. So we're about a third through at the headquarters of NASA in Huntsville, United States. On this peak, I also talk about five minutes about Ezekiel. And after the speech, we had a dinner together, and there was a the, the, the chief of the Department of Construction, an ex-German, his name was Joseph Brumlich, who came to me and said, that was very interesting, but Mr. von Däniken, in the Bible, you will never found technology. The Bible, this is imagination. These are dreamings, visions, but, but not, not technology. He started to read Ezekiel, and finally he realized that whatever Ezekiel described is real, and he started to reconstruct Ezekiel's description. The outcome was a book with the English title, The Spaceship of Ezekiel. And in the foreword of it, Mr. Joe Rumerich, the ex-chief of the construction department at NASA said, I absolutely started this work to disprove Eric von Däniken's story of Ezekiel. But it was absolutely sensational what comes out. Ezekiel did saw an extraterrestrial spacecraft. Now, Ezekiel's spaceship is not a mother spaceship with which you can move from star to star. Ezekiel's spaceship is only a, a, an object which today we would call space shuttle. You have to have a mother spaceship, and from the mother spaceship, a smaller vehicle comes down to the Earth. So that's what it was. Now, this is very important. I knew the uh, uh, original Ezekiel. I read it uh, uh, first in Hebrew. I did not learn special Hebrew, but we had a Latin translation. And in the original Ezekiel, the word God never appears, never. Ezekiel says it was the splendorness of the highest. The word God in the Bible only comes in later by the translators. The translator, the splendor of the highest, he means God. In the original, the word God is never mentioned. So he continues in the book of Ezekiel and says, that the splendorness of the highest arrived a second time. And this time, the hand of the highest put him on the throne. In my view, he was sitting in the co-pilot's chair. And then he describes how they started. He says, and the hand of the highest pressed upon my chest because he feels the gravity when, when starting. He does not know where the trip goes because he says, they brought me on a very, very high mountain. He doesn't know where he is. He looks down and he sees under him something like a city, a small city or a big village. And in the center of it, something like a temple. The, the splendorness of the Lord comes to a standstill over the temple. Slowly, slowly, he sinks inside the so-called temple. And Ezekiel realized at that moment that the noise of the wings were this time higher and louder 
than what he had here before in the desert, because now the echo comes back from the walls of the so-called temple. Then it comes to a standstill. Ezekiel gets out, gets out of the space shuttle, and of a sudden a glittering being appears again, one of the strangers, and he says to Ezekiel, Oh humans, you humans, you have eyes to see, but you see nothing, and you have ears to hear, but you hear nothing. And then the, the man in glittering suit gives Ezekiel a measuring device and orders him to measure this whole building, the so-called temple. Ezekiel, in the meantime, he understands that this has nothing to do with God. So he has courage. He asks back to the, the glittering man, why? Why should I measure this temple? And the other one says, that's the reason why we brought you here, humans. So Ezekiel starts to measure length and wide and how many stairs, etc. All this you can read in the Bible, all the measurements of the so-called temple. Now in Germany, we had a German engineer, his name is Hans Herbert Bayer. And he read these measurements and he asked himself, is this a true world building or is it just imagination, fantasy? And he started to calculate exactly according to Ezekiel's measurement. And out comes a building which looks today like a stadium, like a football stadium. And then this German engineer came to me and I, I saw his calculations, absolutely precise. I asked him, have you ever heard of NASA, of Mr. Blumrich's reconstruction? Because NASA did only reconstruct the splendorness of the highest, which means the shuttle, while the German engineer was only reconstructing the so-called temple. So one had the splendorness of the highest and the temple. So I brought the two men together, the German engineer and the NASA engineer. And the space shuttle fit perfectly into the temple by every centimeter. The so-called temple was nothing else but the base station for the extraterrestrial shuttle. It was not God. It was simply the space shuttle of the extraterrestrials. That's God's throne chariot, his celestial chariot. That's the terminology they would use. But we today would say, well, that's, that's a spacecraft that just came out of a stargate or a wormhole and is suddenly manifested on the Earth plane. So it's a dramatic example of, of what we think of as an extraterrestrial encounter in the Bible. Not only do these celestial type beings appear in the book of Ezekiel, but they're also referenced in other passages from the Bible. If this ancient text is as much a historical document as it is a religious one, might these be clues of a deeper story to our human history? If you look into the other account of Enoch, Enoch had a designated time where he would get into a UFO to lift off with these beings. So much so that he even gave his son the records and the time and the date and everything else that he would be leaving. And uh, he took off. And Enoch is a very, very important person in the Bible. He's mentioned in the Bible several times, even though they omitted his book. And the reason why they omitted his book from the Bible, the book of Enoch, is because it talks about people coming from space and interacting and engaging with mankind. If we consider that advanced beings came with technologies from space and engaged with mankind, might we see evidence of this in the biblical book of Joshua? It is written that the walls of Jericho fell after the Israelites marched around the city 
blowing their trumpets. They were carrying with them the Ark of the Covenant. Some scholars suggest that Moses and the Israelites acquired a supernatural source of energy at Mount Sinai when they were given the commandments that were later placed within the Ark of the Covenant. Could the Ark have contained an energy source so powerful that it could amplify Joshua's horns and radiate enough sonic frequency to bring down those walls? And if so, what other examples show evidence of this power source? When we're talking about possible extraterrestrial technology, of course we have to talk about the Ark of the Covenant, a device that was transmitted, the blueprint was transmitted by God to an Israelite craftsman, Bezalel, who crafts this device, but before he does, God gives him all the wisdom of the universe to build a simple golden box? No. This is an extraordinary piece of extraterrestrial technology. In fact, we're told that there isn't just one Ark of the Covenant, there's one on the earth, and there's one at the throne of God. They must be connected. And what this opens up is the possibility is that the Ark of the Covenant is just not a simple container for the, the tablets of the law and the rod of Aaron and the flask of manna and the cruise of anointing oil, as we're told, that in fact the Ark of the Covenant is a far more yeah. profound device, that in fact it could in fact be a portal device. This is based on the eyewitness accounts of it in operation in the Holy of Holies of Solomon's Temple, where eyewitnesses like Isaiah report seeing luminous humanoid beings suddenly manifested between the wings of the cherubim guarding the Ark of the Covenant. So it's a profound technology that we're talking about with the Ark of the Covenant. And in the, in the book of Samuel, it says, everyone who came too close to the Ark of the Covenant died. And they describe how they died. Their, their skin became pale. Their, their nails and fingers and feet fell out. Uh, they were blind, etc. So they were afraid of the Ark of the Covenant and freely, by free will, they brought it back to Israel. The Israelites the next morning saw that the Ark of the Covenant were here again with four horses. The horses were already near dead. The children of Israel were dancing around the Ark of the Covenant, praying to the Lord that the Ark of the Covenant is back finally from the land of the enemy. And at that morning, so says the Bible, 72 of the Israelites died, including children. What have these children done wrong? The only thing, they were too close to the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant was absolutely dangerous. Humans had no business being around the Ark of the Covenant. It was carried on ring posts, for one thing, for protection, and those who did carry it reported what we today would readily interpret as radiation effects. Their hair, their teeth fell out, populations of, of the Philistines were wiped out by something emanating from the Ark of the Covenant because of its radioactive qualities. Found in the book of Exodus is a bush engulfed in flames that does not singe or calcinate. And where God appears with a message for Moses etched in stone. Could this be a reference to visitors using advanced technology? If you look at the story of Moses, he supposedly climbed a mountain and uh, he then met with the Lord who was represented as a burning bush. It's very, very easy nowadays for us to understand that that burning bush may have been some type of a technology that he just didn't have the vocabulary to, to explain. 
And during this interaction with him and this quote-unquote deity, he was then given the Ten Commandments, which were etched into stone. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that could do that nowadays would be technology. We have laser etching technology. We have different types of technology that can literally etch into stone. So I think that this may be a representation of some type of technology that etched these commandments into stone. And these commandments themselves were given out many thousands of years earlier in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which then made their way into the story of Moses, which is just a reduced version of the 42 laws of Mott, which may have been something much easier for him to bring down to the people and get them to obey and understand. Throughout the Bible, we've, we hear all these stories. Isaiah has one about beings on clouds. Uh, what is the cloud? Well, the cloud is a, a method of transportation used by these beings. Perhaps, again, it's a language thing where people are looking and saying, no, this being is riding upon a cloud, but it's actually maybe some kind of a Merkaba throne chariot or an actual technological spacecraft. That's very interesting. In fact, in the book of Acts, there's another uh, reference to this where two angels dressed in white are walking over and these, these men of Galilee just after the ascension of Jesus are, are looking up. The, the angels say to the men of Galilee, why, why do you look up? Jesus will return to you on a cloud exactly the same way that he left. And so it's clear that the cloud is not a puffy white thing that we see in our atmosphere. The cloud is some kind of method of conveyance between earth and the heavens. So when you're in the Bible and you're seeing a reference to, oh, I saw a being riding on a cloud, we know that's a reference to some form of a craft. In the United States, the Pentagon has publicly confirmed that recent videos of unidentified aerial phenomena were authentic and admitted they don't know how the technology worked. Even the Vatican has put resources into the discovery of potential extraterrestrial life. The Vatican has been very interested in extraterrestrial life for a long time. They invested millions of dollars into an observatory in Arizona, of all places, looking for extraterrestrial life in our universe. Father uh, Gabriel Funes, who was the director of the Vatican Observatory at the time, who said that just as there's a multiplicity of creatures on the Earth, why can't there be a multiplicity of creatures out in the cosmos that God created other intelligent beings? Who are we to limit God's creativity? Because of my having been chief counsel at the Jesuit National Headquarters uh, in their National Social Ministry Office for 10 years in Washington, D.C., I had access to Father Funes. So I reached out to him right away and actually went to visit him and sat down and had this face-to-face -face conversation with him. And in less than three minutes, he was acknowledging that what he was really talking about was not just microscopic life uh, elsewhere or even little insects or anything on some other planet. He was talking about another highly intelligent, highly technologically developed, but categorically non-human species uh, elsewhere in our galaxy. Uh, and, and that was extraordinarily important. The, the implications are that implied teachings of not only the church, but virtually every human institution uh, down through the ages uh, have, have all been rooted in the kind of unconscious premise that our human species is at the apex of all evolved sentient uh, evolution in the universe. Uh, and for 
us to discover that that isn't true, uh, that it dethrones us from the apex of the pyramid of life in the universe. Pope Francis, when he was uh, confronted with this question about what the beliefs of the church were with regard to the existence of extraterrestrial beings, uh, saying that, well, he would see no problem at all in baptizing uh, our brethren from an extraterrestrial civilization because uh, all, all life forms are uh, children of God. The, I guess, inertia uh, of the institutional church is causing them to think that the people are a lot more ignorant and dumber than they really are. Uh, and so that the, the, when you say something like, you know, the, the, the Pope would be willing to baptize, to, what makes you think that they want to be baptized by the Catholic Church? You know, I mean, it's like, you know, we, we go down and we find a whole tribe of chimpanzees, you know, and they're talking about being willing to train us on how to eat a banana. You know, I mean, that, that, that's, you've you got to get onto a higher level. While the discovery of advanced intelligent life elsewhere in the universe may seem like a contradiction to conventional religious doctrine, what might the implications be if the highest representatives of the church and other religious institutions acknowledge extraterrestrials in the Bible? So what are the implications of ET interaction in the Bible for us today? I think what it tells us is that, one, extraterrestrials have been here for a very long time and have a definite interest in the evolution of humanity. What is the purpose? Well, ultimately, in these stories, it's about showing humanity how to become better versions of ourselves, that we can actually become like the gods, that through our interaction with these beings, we too can ascend to the heavens, whether that means in a spiritual form or traveling the stars in some form of a craft or through a stargate. Either way, these beings have been here, and most of these stories where we're talking about an interaction with extraterrestrials involve humans somehow going into the stars, going to other places, and sometimes even returning. I believe that when you look at some of the uh, accounts of ancient craft and UFOs and maybe even potentially aliens in the modern day Bible, you look forward to a future where we're moving in the direction of the ancients. We're moving in a direction where we are now obtaining technologies that make us look godlike. I believe that right now, the way we're moving forward in technology, it's going to allow human beings to operate on a telepathic level. We can share information wirelessly, like Wi-Fi devices. And I also do believe that our space-faring technology is going to give us the ability to do things like beam people from one place to another. We are already working on beaming things uh, through the teleportation devices in laboratories on Earth right now. So the future is going to look much like the things being described in the modern-day Bible, except we'll know that it's really advanced technology. Everything is going to change. Everything is going to change. The interpretation of all uh, information on our planet is going to change. We're going to be in a completely new paradigm. And so that we're going to have to view these reports uh, in, in biblical times of encounters with, with beings from some other dimension, uh, some other spiritual plane, uh, of, of 
vehicles or encounters like in Ezekiel of this uh, whirling uh, light ship of some sort, you know, that all of these things are going to have to be reinterpreted uh, in light of this. Many of our modern day Abrahamic religions are now being re-examined and their doctrines reshaped based on the idea that we're not alone in the universe. There's a new type of spirituality emerging because the old ways are not as relevant as they once were. More than half of American adults and 75% of young Americans believe we've had contact with some sort of intelligent extraterrestrial life. This level of belief rivals that even of a belief in God. But one day we might discover that the Bible is one of the greatest extraterrestrial contact documents ever written. As we conclude season three of Deep Space, consider the following. If a distant race of ancient aliens once inhabited the lands of the Bible, and these were real life events and not merely visions, then a new paradigm awaits us where science, spirituality, and open contact is the next scripture about to be written. December 2020, retired Israeli security chief said there is a galactic federation and they're staying hidden right now because we're not ready for them. The Galactic Federation are concerned. Paul Hellyer told me we had extraterrestrials helping our scientists on Earth at bases and there was full cooperation. The Galactic Federation is comprised of countless species and civilizations. These are all intelligences that are influencing our technology, our consciousness. There was a reptilian that was part of this war over our species. Yeah. Yeah. The Galactic Federation started as a defense treaty from reptilian expansion into our galaxy. The Galactic Federation is trying to help us. They're out there. And they are watching there's not only one galactic federation, there are federations all over the place in the universe. But maybe I should uh into that um, Galactic Federation introducing the Galactic Federation
Is humankind on the verge of open extraterrestrial contact? And if so, is the current disclosure movement a first step towards revealing a collective of non-terrestrial intelligences working together within a galactic federation? For more than 60 years, alternative media has explored the idea of a galactic federation. From popular sci-fi shows, to individuals who claim to be in communication with extraterrestrial intelligences. The possibility of a galactic federation as reality has been made more significant with its acknowledgement by the former general and head of Israel's Defense Ministry's yeah. Space Directorate, Chaim Eshad, when he publicly proclaimed, Earthlings have been in contact with extraterrestrials from a galactic federation. In December 2020, Chaim Ashed, who is a retired Israeli security chief, talked to the Jerusalem Post and said, ah, there is a galactic federation and they've been involved with human affairs, but they're staying hidden right now because we're not ready for them. And they want us to know they're, they're here to observe us and they're very interested in the fabric of the universe and we need to know more about the fabric of the universe. Well, that's pretty extraordinary. Former Canadian Minister of National Defense and longtime member of parliament, the late Honorable Paul Hellyer was the first and only cabinet-ranking official from a G8 nation to publicly state his belief in extraterrestrials and the alleged Galactic Federation of Aliens. Well, I, I only know about the Galactic Federation, but they are concerned about what's going on in the world, and they have been working um, through individuals. They say, you clean up your act. You're in charge, it's your planet. And if it comes to a dead end, it'll be because you let it or made it a dead end. Even in my conversations I had with the late Paul Hellyer, he told me that we had extraterrestrials helping our scientists on Earth at bases and there was full cooperation with them. Paul would say that these were part of a galactic federation. Tim, a tactical advisor to covert analysts in Germany, trying to understand the missions and strategies of non-terrestrial intelligences on Earth, recalls information from a collective of beings in the sixth density that Tim refers to as being six. I also have heard being six talk about some of its members being part of a galactic federation. So there seems to be a lot of truth to it. One of the first things in a dualistic universe that, you know, comes up within species is alignship, which means um, finding people who support your own position, which um, I would say is a yeah. truth um, all over the place in the universe. You have like many alliances. The greys are setting up their own alliance, so to speak, but different other species as well, you know, have contracts which, with, with each other. And being six directly spoke about a galactic federation, yes. Which basically makes sense because you have so many cultures and so many different planets and so many different standpoints going on in the universe that it totally makes sense to have some kind of regulatory system that might balance that out. And this is the way I understand a galactic federation. It seems to be quite a complicated situation because you have so many different agendas going on.
while no one can say with certainty when the Galactic Federation was first created, some experts suggest it may have been as much as hundreds of thousands of years ago. My understanding is that this is the time where there has been a sort of competition, some sort of conflict that started to happen within this galaxy. Most researchers agree that the Galactic Federation started as a defense treaty from reptilian expansion into our galaxy. At that time, it was decided or decreed, if you will, uh, that a kind of a neutral organization be put in place to be able to supervise and maintain the order within this galaxy. You have to remember, this galaxy is part of a larger conglomerate of galaxies and then the universe. So there are larger organizations that are also in charge of maintaining order across the universe. And so when one particular area is struggling with any sort of conflict or yeah. issues between species, then that larger organization is going to say, we need some local organization that will supervise this area of the universe and make sure it maintains the order that is necessary. Through his role as a tactical advisor in the German equivalent of unacknowledged special access programs, Tim has had more than 100 face-to-face -face encounters with the extraterrestrial species referred to as the Greys, which he describes as having an artificially created body into which they download their individual consciousness. Tim believes they're a benevolent race who have an influence on the Galactic Federation. The way I understand it um, is that there's not only one singular Galactic Federation and it definitely has not, um, you know, influence over every single part of the universe. It seems to be a construct um, which seems to be set up for uh, more and more species and planets. Um, but there are also like... Um, different federations and different interest groups and uh, very strong boundings or loose boundings uh, all over the place in the universe. So I have in-depth knowledge about the federation that the Greys are in, where human military personnel is also engaged and different other warrior type species. I personally think that this is different than what pop culture and media portrays as Galactic Federation or even that Galactic Federation that um, Israel was speaking about. I think they have a different mindset, but I mean, there still seems to be some overlapping influences here and there. While one might assume that there are ongoing contact scenarios between Federation members and various governmental military and interest groups on earth countless individuals worldwide also claim contact with galactic federation members since the 1950s we have seen just a sort of a parade if you will of people that maintain that they have had encounters with representatives of the galactic federation that they themselves are agents of the federation and that they are now bringing forward this message so what is the role of the individual in this scenario? I mean, part of it is to say, well, 
if you are receiving that information, to make sure you are the best representative of that information, that you're not just saying things that are coming off the top of your head, that there is some kind of backup for what you're saying. I mean, if you're going to put yourself on a, out like that, you're willing to be put on a stand and tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so we have to be sure that what the individuals are bringing forward does have some connection to reality, let's say. And that, to, to me, is, is sort of tricky because individuals don't carry the clout that a government does. And so it's a sort of a David versus Goliath scenario. But if you put together multiple individuals, multiple eyewitnesses that have all seen the same thing, they're carrying essentially the same message, now that's a whole different story. And that's what's happening today. Matthias de Stefano expands on the idea of the Galactic Federation as a group of species who share the same ideals to include entire planets as one consciousness. He calls this the Confederation. The word Confederation actually comes from the Latin and means those who share a faith together, that they trust to one another. So a confederation is basically a group of planets that trust each other. And their agenda is basically to help those planets that are willing or in process of evolution towards consciousness to find their own way of acknowledging themselves. So what they started to do was to work with these planets uh, that were in the path of evolution so they could share much more data. So it's not that they are having this agenda of helping humans because they love humans or because we are the good ones or whatever. It's just because they see that our planet, like many others, has the potential of sharing a lot of data, a lot of information. Sometimes when you think about the Galactic Federation, you have to try to think about, uh, about it like if you are talking about your own brain, trying to figure out something and connecting neurons, data, and, and improving the way in which you understand the reality around you. According to researchers, the Galactic Federation is comprised of countless species and civilizations. The ones most familiar to humanity are the Andromedans, Arcturians, Syrians, Pleiadians, and Felines. While other councils, alliances, and associations exist to work together on various projects and agendas, which may also include Galactic Federation members, the core members of the Peaceful Inner Circle include these five. The Galactic Federation includes tens of thousands of different categories. In my work, the Arcturians would be one category as being the midway intelligence between the planetary systems of the third dimension and those of the higher dimensions. Another would be the Andromedans. It would be those who create amazing spacecraft that would require them to do the building in outer space because they're dealing with molecular relationships on multiple levels going through electromagnetic spectrums. Another, of course, would be the Pleiadians that come from what we would call in the indigenous tradition, the Seven Sisters or the Planetary Association of emphasizing the artistic and the holistic realm of creation. The Galactic Federation is made up of all those beings trying to help humanity right now. They're not designed just for us, but that's the ones that are focusing right now on our 
development. And the Arcturians are a key part to that. There's other races as well that are part of that, those connected with Sirius, for example, the star system Sirius, those connected with the Pleiadians. These are all intelligences that are here now influencing our technology, our consciousness, so we can grow. Another major player in the Galactic Federation is the Pleiadians. The Pleiadians also play a very important role in the galaxy. The Pleiades have a very, very large mixture of species right there. I feel like the Pleiadians are uh, the most knowledgeable about the galaxy. There are many members of this confederation, but each one of them has a very different way to relate to each other. For example, one of the main members are the Pleiadians that were basically the ones that moved uh, everyone to, to create it. For example, the Pleiadians saying, we need to download this information. The Arcturians saying, okay, we know how to make a package for this information. And the Syrians saying, okay, we know how to build a reality around that package. So it could be improved. So basically they are the main ones that designed this idea of putting together many of those concepts and information that came from other worlds and other solar systems. In an unexpected spontaneous download from extraterrestrial intelligences with whom Marina Jacoby is in contact, she shares information regarding the prominent species of the Galactic Federation. When you sell Galactic Federation, understand that in the evolutionary moment, every single perspective of reality has a representative. Each family, so-called galactic family, realizes that you cannot be all disengaged with consciousness itself. And in order to continue your evolutionary process of expansion, you must go in the next level of understanding. Once you connect to that frequency, so you shall see that reality for yourself. If humanity has the chance to utilize their biological bodies and to utilize their dualistic way of perceiving reality, then they can grow from that. So what they did, and they meaning higher frequential beings, being six if you want to name it, they had an embargo, a frequential embargo surrounding Earth, meaning this planet, this planetary life sphere that we are on right now, oh. is only capable of displaying life forms and uh, data that comes from level one, two, three, and four consciousness, but is not able to, um, capable of uh, receiving direct influence from level five, six, and seven. And that, you know, is the chance, the opportunity that uh, life on this planet needed in order to, to grow individually. That being said, um, the Earth is now heading towards a situation in, in the universe where higher frequencies are allowed and directly influencing this planet and its, its vibrational field, which makes it possible for having direct influences by higher frequencies in the upcoming time. The Galactic Federation has been in contact with humanity 
longer than anyone truly knows. Consensus amongst experts suggests that their agenda is to aid in our conscious evolution. But will humanity ever become aware of our galactic family through some kind of public disclosure? Or is it possible that hints of a galactic federation have already made their way into mainstream media via TV and film? We know that intelligence agencies like to use movies and television to disseminate certain truths and ideas that might be unknown to the public. Is it possible that they use shows like Star Trek to convey the concept of a galactic federation? In the 1970s, through colleagues of mine working with Andre Puharich in New York, we had the opportunity to have Gene Roddenberry, the famous Gene Roddenberry, part of one of our study groups. And he heard the terminology used frequently by one of my colleagues. Phyllis Schlemmer, and uh, at that time, uh, he was so intrigued by the paraphysical phenomena that happened in the rooms that we were being used for telepathic communication, that he went on, I am told, to expand this later in life into what is called Deep Space Nine, utilizing the terminology of the Nine, or the higher cosmic entities behind, shall we say, the thoughts and the efforts of the Galactic Federation <laughs> to guide the humanity into a higher level. And it is through Phyllis that we gain some of these little tidbits and these little elements that Gene Roddenberry was able to incorporate into Star Trek, into Deep Space Nine, to help prime the human mind <laughs> to this evolutionary concept, to this growth, that we are not alone in this galaxy, that there is this greater council watching over us and protecting us, but they can't interfere with us until we are ready to be joining them, until we're ready to have our evolutionary shift in technology to grow into this higher state of being and join the Galactic Federation at large. Now, what may be that the reason why we see this logo popping up in all of the world space agency is that it is a salute to this original Andromedan Council in the Galactic Federation that we learned about from the Council of Nine through the medium Phyllis Schlemmer in these various meetings with Gene Roddenberry and other folks. And it just kind of made its way and dispersed itself throughout the world so that we can be aware of it. Since space agencies' logos worldwide integrate the A-shaped symbol, one might question why our current cylindrical rocket-shaped technology isn't depicted instead. If we look at the logos of many different space organizations on Earth, we notice that there's this A-shape to it. And it's interesting to find out that this A-shape may actually refer back to this Andromedan Council. It's just a hint to all of us that the Andromedan Council still has a place and a role in the development of human technologies human civilizations as we're growing into the new the age. What's really interesting is that the shape of this particular logo, regardless of the language that these countries represent, because, you know, a lot of language have different characters. You know, for instance, the Chinese characters don't look anything like the Russian characters that don't look anything like English. But they all use the same A symbol. My understanding with this is that I think this is just a direct correlation of this A symbol coming from a higher extraterrestrial language. So a lot of people don't realize this, but language here on Earth didn't originate here on Earth. Language here on Earth originated from extraterrestrial beings that came to Earth, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of years ago, 
to teach earth people, you know, civilization, you know, and that includes the language. More than seeing the A-shaped symbol here on official space agency logos, researchers suggest that there's a potential connection between these logos and our closest neighboring constellations. Might there be significance to the specific star clusters appearing on government's insignias? It's interesting when we look at some of the space agencies version of the symbol, it differs slightly from the Star Trek logo in that there are many different stars depicted and having these constellations on this symbol for space travel and space agencies can't be just a coincidence. When we look at the Space Force logo, they're essentially telling us with the symbology that they're getting help, that they have outside influences. And so you might say that the similarity in these logos are telling you that at the highest levels of government, they're working in unison together. When we look at these logos for the space agencies and we see the three stars that are on them, our contactees give us a different perspective of what those three stars could mean. They suggest that those three stars are for Andromeda, Arcturus, and Lyra, which are three of the big players of the Galactic Federation that have a big part in the role of humanity and our evolution in protecting us here on our planet. I think because the Galactic Federation, who is representing the Andromeda Council, they're kind of like an arm of the Andromeda Council. They've been in contact with certain Earth agencies. Earth agencies have had access to this logo, and so they adopted it as their own logo. Uh, maybe in the hopes that Monday they'll be a member of the Galactic Federation. But it's that there's definitely a connection there. Regarding why uh, an A like for Andromeda or that connection would be in many agencies, the information brings me to a much more human concept regarding Andromeda. Basically, Andromeda, Andros, it's basically the divine being that protected men. And when you see the skies, you see this soft light when it's very clear, which is Andromeda, far away. So it's like a spirit flying in between the stars, protecting our realities. If anyone is trying to protect the skies from something that is coming, they would use a symbol of Andromeda to say they are the ones taking care of men. As humankind moves closer to understanding our place within the greater galactic community, our own readiness on both an individual and collective level may be the determining factor for success. As the open contact scenario unfolds, I, I really believe that there's two paths that it could potentially take. One is the path of humanity joining a, what I refer to as the dragon, where we merge with technology and we all become a single hive mind. That's something talked about by the U.S. government, promoted by the U.S. government, that you lose your individuality, that there is one human being on this planet, one race, that is it, subservient to the dragon and the technology. The other path is where we retain our organic and spiritual selves, and we plug into a spiritual hierarchy, a spiritually motivated galactic federation that assists us in becoming more like an angelic species, maintaining our biology, but at the same time merging more with higher frequencies of light rather than technology. I don't think they coexist. 
I think they could possibly intersect slightly, but I don't think they coexist. I think it's an either-or situation, and we are right now, in the next five years, deciding which that is going to be. And there they will find the Federation waiting. It's not only the Galactic Federation that's coming here, it's also those who are doing their own thing, checking us out, doing their own medical experiments on our biology. It's complex. They're different intelligences, but thank goodness there is a greater galactic whole who's also watching us, part of the Galactic Federation who's here to help, and we're all part of that greater holism in terms of the consciousness ability to understand our own development. Some of us are still believing we're alone in the universe. So it is going to take some time and unfortunately to unfold very gradually, I would say even from now moving forward. We are now closing a whole history from the first time that we got in contact with the Confederation. So it means that we have gone through a whole process of inner process and now we are ready to go out. This is the first time that people are willing to go to the moon, to Mars. And so the planet is kind of ready to go beyond. Uh, and I don't say humans, it's the planet. is the planet, the awareness of the planet that is saying, I am bigger than this. So that's why humans are trying to leave the planet, not because we don't like it, but because it's moment to spread. This means that the whole planet is getting ready to open themselves to other realities, to something bigger. But I wouldn't say that would happen in our lifetime. I think we have a lot of things to do before we can get in touch with them. We have problems with our neighbors and our families. We cannot deal with others. Everyone everywhere that makes a willing full decision to be part of a galactic federation in a harmonious uh, and peacemaking and balancing way uh, contributes something to this community, everyone. Basically, everyone watching this can grow and, and be together. Just this singular thought contributes something to this galactic federation in the way that higher frequentials understand it. Everyone can contact the species or any other species and ask for help or even ask for a positive outcome, which is basically the all shift happening now concept that we, we're doing. The Galactic Federation exists because the nature of life is one of cooperative help, the ability of brotherly and sisterly love. And so our understanding of the Galactic Federation will be like looking at brothers and sisters who are cosmic cousins on the other side of the pond of space and brothers and sisters who have learned to achieve results by going through the quagmire that we find ourselves in we're part of humanity wants new science and part of it wants old spirituality ultimately science and spirituality do merge together requires a upgrade of our consciousness and so the galactic federation is here to provide the ways and means for the upgrade of our consciousness that we can be should we see using more of that great talent that is in our brain to be using more of that powerful 
spirit vibration of our heart and ultimately to having the vision that we're all one species growing up as homo universalis which means universal humanity in the fullest sense of exploring the universe and being citizens in this greater universe as citizens of this greater universe we may not see an official disclosure regarding the galactic federation from our governments just yet still Evidence suggests that a galactic federation and the various species within it have been influencing and continue to influence individuals and a greater humanity on Earth to this day. As we look to our galactic family amongst the stars, there are many people who find comfort knowing that they are looking back. Next time on Deep Space, we explore one of the most controversial species in history, the Greys. Gray aliens, many originating from the constellation of Orion, are perhaps the most commonly encountered extraterrestrial species that we know. Named for the coloration of their skin, they're often confused with extraterrestrial biological entities, or Ebens, who are also gray in appearance. While there are several species of grays, they're most often described as having small synthetic bodies hairless heads with large black eyes, and an individual consciousness within. These are the small beings also depicted in various historic artifacts around the world. To what degree are the greys involved in the history of humankind, and to what extent might they be influencing our destiny as we look to the future? Based on the Defense Intelligence Agency classifications of extraterrestrial groups, which I had access to information relating to that. There are two groups or two classifications degrees. The first one are the Ebens. The Ebens came to us here in 1947 when one of their crafts crashed in Corona, New Mexico in Horse Mesa. We recovered one live ET, one Eben. He was in captivity in 1952. The second classification of grays are the Hepaloids. They look similar to the Ebens, but they come from a different planet. They look different in respects to size and pop culture or society in general that had access to both the Ebens and Hepaloids confuse them. And they classify them all in one category, but that's wrong. When we're looking at gray species, we're dealing with so many different appearances, and yet they've all got the similar quality, which makes them a gray. So it seems to be, from my perspective, that they've been hybridized multiple times, and we're seeing a lot of different types of features. 
So there's a basic small two foot, three foot tall gray, who's pretty much just a robot. Then there's the classic gray, which is the sort of four foot tall, big headed person with sort of relatively long limbs, very ashen gray, which is where they get their name and the classic rat round eyes, which they all have. Now, when we get to that, we're looking at appearance that is the classic gray appearance and maybe the kind of root of the gray. The haploids, their head was proportionately larger than their body. Their face was round. The skin tone of the head was slightly darker than the skin tone of the body. And maybe that was for protection. They had larger eyes. The eyes had a couple of different lenses protecting the, the irises or maybe the optic nerve from radiation or from bright light. The mouth had just a small slit, but it could widen. They, they could widen the mouth. The ear canal was small, exterior, larger interior. Their hearing, they had a huge vessel inside their ear canal. The haploids had teeth or, or something that they would we would consider teeth, a hard palate, so to speak. The haploids had different organs, almost similar to ours. They had a heart, what we would consider a heart, and they had one big organ that straddled the heart, which we would consider a lung. They had two different gullets or stomachs. I think the description by one particular physician was that the skin was very fibrous. We couldn't identify what that fiber was. We first thought it was a protective layer. The exterior of the haploids would change or it would glow or it would darken somewhat the fibrous material. And that was, we think, some form of protection. The wrists, I remember, on the haploids were very, very bony compared to the bone structure on the even wrist. And that allowed the haploids to move their hands in very strange ways, nothing like what a human could move their hand, almost uh, 360 degrees. So their anatomy was different than than the even. So we, we classified at that point, the DIA classified this particular group of greys as haploids. In a secret access program located in Germany, where they have direct face-to-face -face relationship with gray extraterrestrials, Tim, whose role as a tactical advisor, working in a diplomatic capacity, had more than 100 encounters with a small gray species. I'm not a biologist here by any means, but um, the way I understand it is that the fiber that is being used on the, on the uh, small gray puppets resists a lot of power forces and it resists certain atmospherical phenomena that could occur. They also have specific design on the lenses of their eyes, which means uh, they are able to, to see within that atmosphere wherever they are going, compared to a planet that is mostly clouds of acid uh, or something. To be able to uh, see through these different conditions, you need differently printed eyes and differently structured organs, for example. They have different classes and they're also constantly evolving and rearranging their uh, genetic profile. 
we have different colors like green, bronze, a type of violet, purple, and the grayish color. Those different colors uh, define certain different classes within the society of the grays. So not all grays are gray and not all gray species are grays, which might be, you know, confusing um, for some researchers because they hear stories about grayish beings, which might not even be part of the gray community. Because of the fiber-printed material that Grays use as bodies for specific missions, some investigators conclude that we're dealing with robotic artificial intelligence. People sometimes think that the Grays are robots, which they are not. They use a artificial fiber material 